You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. For anyone who knows the frustration of the 30-second sellout, change is coming. A lot of people blame ticket bots for snapping up all the good seats. But the province is taking the first step in creating new rules that will protect customers. Ted Trinecki is live with more on this. And Ted, critics are already saying that today's announcement falls short. Yeah, I mean, what's the delay here? We know that Alberta and Ontario have already passed consumer protection legislation. What's the delay here? The best we could get from the province today was an announcement about a three-week consultation exercise. And he's at the center. The province wants to hear from everybody concerned, and that will include ticket resellers like the Vancouver Ticket and Tour Service. And they have plenty to say about what's wrong with the system now. And bots, they say, isn't the only or even the biggest problem. You need transparency. Before you can come up with any kind of decision, you need to know exactly what you're up against. Sean, I'm moving once. Why, for example, is it never revealed exactly how many tickets are going on sale? Resellers argue that if only one-third of the seating capacity is actually on sale, and if 100,000 people are trying to get a ticket, it could sell out in minutes and have nothing to do with bots. That's one reason BC is starting this three-week survey. There are other uh, uh, legislative models in place in different provinces, uh, but they're quite variable. And so what we want to hear from is particularly the people in here in British Columbia, as well as the industry here in British Columbia. But clearly, computers that bulk buy tickets are a problem. In November, Alberta introduced legislation banning so-called bots or computer robots. There, resellers must now do due diligence and prove the second-hand tickets they're selling didn't come from bots. They can face a fine of up to $300,000 or two years in jail if caught. They must also guarantee refunds if shows are cancelled or the tickets proved to be counterfeit. And consumers have the power to sue bot-run operations. None of this happens in B.C. yet. Going to jail is maybe a bit far, but I think to ban it is definitely a good idea. Yeah, that'd be great if it if they, it's found to be effective, then I'd be for it. Maybe like turn back to the quite quite like old techniques where you buy tickets like only in the shops or something like somewhere there. Old school. All right, Ted. When do we think this legislation might be changed? Well, the good news is it's only a three-week consultation process. After that, it's weigh all the options, what might what might not work, with the aim of introducing legislation in the fall. But until then, unlike in Alberta in Ontar- and in Ontario, in B.C., it's anything goes, and uh, buyer beware. Chris, Sylvie? All right, thanks for that. Ted Trinecki in Vancouver tonight. A possible break in a hit-and-run case that has left a senior in hospital with critical injuries. It happened Sunday night in the 7400 block of Gilly Avenue in Burnaby. The 68-year-old pedestrian was transported to hospital. Burnaby RCMP confirming tonight a vehicle of interest has been located. Preliminary reports suggested that it was likely red in color with damage to the front. RCMP say they're still in the early stages of the investigation and they are asking for witnesses to come forward. Now to a mega mansion in Richmond built on what was once a farm and it's in the agricultural land reserve and for a time it operated illegally as a hotel. The home's been listed on travel websites advertised as a fancy guest house which is of course against the rules. Grace Key went door knocking and found the owners to hear their explanation. I'm Grace Key. I'm with Global BC. Are you the owner of the house? 
This mega home on Steeston Highway sits on agricultural land in Richmond, and according to some travel websites, it has a guest house available to rent with a spa tub and housekeeping. We spoke with the owners who didn't want to go on camera, but they say it was a tenant who had posted it as a short-term rental without a license. Both received a fine, and the tenant was evicted. It's not for us. The problem is not from us. Concerned citizens brought the house to the attention of city council recently, along with 5,500 signatures on a petition asking for a 5,300 square feet cap on homes built on agricultural land, about half of what's currently allowed. When you have speculation, houses built not for farming, uh, you're removing land from the ALR. So uh, really the story in Richmond is speculation. These are not farmhouses. Bupender Demon is a second-generation blueberry farmer. Three generations live in their 1970s home. His sister moved out because space was getting tight. He has another job to help support the farm. To make a go of it uh, economically, uh, our family and many other families pooled their resources, lived together, reduced the costs. What is happening with these bylaw changes is actually changing the way... uh, Families make farming viable. Last spring, the city reduced the maximum size of a home on agricultural land to 10,700 square feet. The mayor says the city is also looking into the developed area around the home. A six-month review on last spring's change is now underway. There was uh, some real effect, some positive effect in limiting the house size uh, through those regulations. But the question is, do we want to go farther? As for the house on Steveston, the city says the owner has brought the property into compliance and has now applied for a bed and breakfast license. Grace Key, Global News. Concerns tonight about a review panel looking at the way B.C. schools are funded. Right now, the system works on a per-pupil model, but that could soon change. And John Hua tells us why that's worrisome to B.C.'s largest school districts. At Surrey schools like Cassie Elementary, a lot of the focus is on quantity. This year alone, we've gotten, I think, over 400 extra kids. But Surrey School Board says its quality of education will suffer thanks to the province's plan to change the current per-pupil funding. We all know the old saying, if it isn't broken, then don't fix it. The B.C. NDP government tasking a review panel to find a better way to allocate the nearly $5.7 billion operating budget for all 60 public school boards across B.C. Tell me where that money is going to come from. I say to you and everybody else that it's going to come off the back of the children in Surrey. With growth in Surrey booming, parents say schools here need every dollar. We have a lot of kids that need funding all the time, so it's that's scary. So maybe it's one model for the Lower Mainland and one model for rural BC. The education minister says with per-pupil funding around since 2002, it's time to find a better way. I would say to Surrey that the the current model doesn't work well for many parts of the province, including fast-growing districts like themselves. While new funding options still need to be figured out, some of the review guidelines might work against per-pupil funding, including being consistent, which allows budgets to be set over multiple years, and being responsive to the unique local needs of individual school districts. Districts like Surrey, uh, very sophisticated, large organizations, uh, are going to have a, a lot of input. Uh, into this review. The only problem, Surrey and Vancouver are not part of the review panel. Who is speaking out for the larger districts? Absolutely nobody. Hard for Surrey to trust a process that's supposed to give every school board an equal share. Come on then, let's go. When it's feeling shut out from having a say. John Hua, Global News.
And that's not the only funding hit for school districts. For example, in Vancouver, the estimated annual impact of the employer's health tax, replacing the medical services plan premiums, will be $7.5 million, an additional $2.7 million when all is said and done. But in 2019-2020, they'll take an even bigger hit when the taxes overlap. It will cost the district an extra $3.7 million that year. A new tool is in the works that will help you make a more informed decision when it comes to the care of vulnerable members of your family, whether it's choosing the right daycare, seniors' home, or recovery center. Tanya Beja breaks down how the province is hoping to prevent more tragedies. Leanne Page is looking for childcare for 18-month-old DJ. She's considering an unlicensed facility and says more information would give her peace of mind. I could can kind of make a more educated choice rather than just like, okay, well, you're cheap. The province announced changes designed to boost transparency around unlicensed daycares. The name of the centre, operator and address will be posted online, as is currently the case for licensed facilities. All inspection reports and investigations will be flagged. There are those who are operating illegally, caring for too many children, not meeting health and safety standards, without criminal record checks, without first aid certification. And so it's those kind of operators that we want to make sure uh, we can track their histories. The move comes more than a year after the death of McCall and Saney. Baby Mac died at an unlicensed daycare in Vancouver that had previously violated rules around attendance limits. The centre's history was unknown to parents. No family should ever face a tragedy because they are using a childcare program. Under the proposed legislation, information will also be published about assisted living, community care and mental health centres, with records posted for the past five years. The province is also adding 16 full-time officers to inspect and monitor facilities. It's absolutely required. It absolutely brings more um, transparency. But it, it does not take away the responsibility of government to enforce the law, and it's absolutely our intention to do so. For families, the change can't come soon enough. I think it'll help daycares to stay accountable. That's a good thing. Tanya Beja, Global News. There has been another case involving a needle that appears to have been deliberately placed to hurt someone. This time in Vancouver. It was found early yesterday morning when paramedics were responding to a call on East Hastings near Columbia Street. A needle found sticking out from a wall next to an automatic door opening button. Luckily, no one was hurt and the syringe was safely removed. Also important to note, Vancouver Coastal Health says no one has ever acquired HIV or any other pathogen from a needle stick injury from a, uh, from a discarded needle in Vancouver. More tonight on a cold case involving a man who says he was sexually assaulted as a child, allegedly at the hands of an elementary school volunteer. Tonight, Ramina Dea explains what we've learned about other alleged victims and why the accused, Joseph Duff, never went to trial. And a warning, some of the details are sensitive in nature. The evidence disturbing. Historical police documents reveal several children, including some from Glenwood Elementary School in Maple Ridge, were interviewed by RCMP in the 1990s. The files depict graphic drawings and details involving sexual abuse allegations against Joseph Duff. And I want to know the truth. Darren Telford claims the audio recordings from his police interview as a child are missing. People in authority that 
I was supposed to be taught to trust at that age didn't do anything for me. Global News has uncovered court documents detailing eight counts of sexual offenses between 1991 and 1999 laid against Duff. The accused, now deceased. The charges involved three children, including Telford. October 99, a one-line letter from Crown states proceedings were stayed. The charges dropped. No trial, no explanation why. The BC Prosecution Service says it's looking into it and will pull the files from archives. Ultimately, in January 2000, Duff entered into a peace bond on two sexual offenses involving Telford only. Again, no trial, but Duff was released on court-ordered conditions. Number three, alarming, because Duff was to have no contact with five children, including Telford. Why these kids? What were the reasons? No explanation in the file. The school sent a warning letter to parents in 1999, eight years after Telford claims his mother first notified the school about the abuse. The school district denies it knew. The letter states an adult neighbor has been charged with a number of offenses involving children. The individual has not gone to trial and is innocent until proven guilty. Who is the school referring to? No name in the letter. The district not commenting because of a civil trial next month. It'll all come out in court. So they're going to, they're fighting a fight they can't win, in my mind. Romina Dea, Global News. Mixed reaction to the demolition of a 70-year-old church in the Oak Ridge area. Like many other churches, Oak Ridge United on 41st Avenue between Oak and Camby has been dwindling in members in recent years, making the old building too large and expensive to maintain. Now it's being redeveloped and a new church will be part of a housing development on the property. It's hard on everyone, but changes around us, we all have to go with it. Uh, it was a beautiful church, and m the lives of so many people, they grew up there, they had their children there, they lived their lives uh, in many ways through the church, and all of that is, uh, is a great loss to the community. Well, not all is lost. Some of the stained glass and doors were saved scheduled opening of the new church is for 2020. In the meantime, the Oak Ridge United congregation is sharing space with Marple United on West 67th. Well, it is what Canucks fans have been talking about all day, the hit that knocked Brock Besser out of the game and a lot more. And out of the season. That's the a lot more. Squire Burns is here to talk more about this. How is he doing, first off? Well, he um, went to hospital last night. They took him down there and uh, apparently he walked out. Um, four to six weeks. It's a soft tissue injury and a little problem at the bottom of his back around the spine area, but it's nothing serious. Well, it's serious enough to keep him out four to six weeks, but he should be good to go next year. Uh, there you see the hit. It really wasn't, I mean, he was trying to hit Clutterbuck. Clutterbuck just kind of gave him a little shove, and then Besser, what happened was the door was open because Vertanen had just gone to the bench, and that's the reason that he got hurt. If that door had been closed, we wouldn't be talking about this, and Besser would still be playing the rest of this year. Tough way to end what's been an amazing year well, for him. Well, it's, I mean, he has been the best thing about the Vancouver Canucks this year. Uh, great rookie, bright future, one of the best shots in the NHL, 29 goals. I think um, 10 of them were on the power play, so a lot of them were 5-on-5. Five five. And the one thing about Brock Besser this year is as the season went on, 
it wasn't like other teams didn't know about this kid. They were watching him, and he was still scoring goals. So he is very much a part of the future for the Vancouver Canucks. You just won't see him likely the rest of this year. Well, as Canucks fans say, there's always next year. Or next decade. Thanks, <laughs> Squire. We're seeing a speedy recovery. Yes. All right. I know you got more coverage coming up yeah. a little bit later. Thanks, Squire. Right now, though, boaters enjoy a lifestyle that allows them to live along B.C.'s mainly or many beautiful coastal waterways. But too many of them are bending the rules. Derelict boats and liveaboards have become an eyesore. But now a B.C. Supreme Court ruling will help clean up a notorious waterway in Victoria and possibly others around the province. Barely afloat, rusted out, some even wash up on shore. This is styrofoam. Derelict boats, either abandoned or used as homes, sit stagnant off nearly every coastal community across the country. And municipalities can't do anything about it. It's the frustration of, of local government trying to control something that's under federal jurisdiction. In Victoria, that frustration reached a breaking point. For years, it's been trying to have owners remove their vessels from the Gorge waterway through bylaw enforcement, with no success. But now, after a B.C. Supreme Court ruling confirms the city's zoning regulations don't intrude on federal jurisdiction over navigation and shipping, that's about to change. The judge ruled that as a city, uh, we have the ability to, ability to regulate land use uh, on that water lot in the same way that we have the ability to regulate land use uh, on land, essentially. It will protect our coastlines. But given the Prime Minister's promise to take care of the problem as part of the Oceans Protection Plan, the federal NDP says it shouldn't have come to this. That's why we've been calling for a comprehensive coast-wide solution so this gets dealt with by the federal government where it belongs, you know, in partnership with local communities. But you can't just do this patchwork. Now those living on the boats here have until May 7th to vacate the area and move on. But unlike other deadlines that have come and gone before, this one, if ignored, could have some legal consequences. If they don't, they'll be in contempt of court. They'll essentially be breaking the law and then they'll, uh, they'll need to be removed. But you know, my, my expectation is it'll be pretty clear to everyone what's expected. The question then is what municipality will have to deal with it next. They're going to move to some other location on the coast, whether it's in Brentwood Bay or Cordero Bay or, heaven forbid, Ganges on Salt Spring Island. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. New kid on the block could give Surrey's ruling party a run for its money this fall. The Surrey Community Alliance is gearing up to take on the Surrey First Regime, which has reigned for a decade. As Jeff Hastings reports, the party's president has long been pushing for action on crime and better transit in the growing community. Shining above Surrey's Civic Plaza, the newest jewel in the city core's revitalization is almost open for business. It's right next door to City Hall, governed by a single party. All eight council seats belong to Surrey first. Surrey has spoken loud and clear! But opposition to Surrey first has organized. We believe they needs a real shake-up on council. The one-party system in Surrey is, is just not acceptable anymore. Doug Elford is the familiar face fronting the launch of a new civic party. He's known for community safety activism, but says the Surrey Community Alliance is far more than a single-issue slate. We're not just a progressive group. We're uh, a group of people from all different political stripes, just basically neighborhoods and communities that are uh, concerned about the fact that they're not being heard. Homelessness, transportation and affordability, issues we're well acquainted with are front of mind. But it's the Surrey First Council monopoly they're most eager to change. We, we are individuals and we act 
as individuals when it comes to any issue that comes forward. Uh, but certainly one thing that we are doing different than past councils is looking at how we can cooperate and work together to make sure that we actually deal with the business that's of Surrey, make sure that we handle those issues, make sure that we don't get caught up in politics. Looming over the 2018 civic elections, three words, campaign, finance, reform. It's something that's intended to level the playing field, getting rid of corporate and union donations and introducing individual spending limits. They still have their war chests they're allowed to spend up to the writ. But having the limited donations is going to um, is going to restrict what happens in the campaign. Any party in power this long accumulates baggage. And I think there is a certain amount of discontent over some issues. I think in my opinion, the biggest one is probably LRT versus SkyTrain. Surrey First will run on their record, proud of their accomplishments. BC cities vote in October. Jeff Hastings, Global News. A new poll reveals about one in four British Columbians is at risk of investment fraud. And it's going to be a little surprising to learn who's most vulnerable. Our consumer reporter, Andrew, is here with more. Anne. Yeah, some surprising numbers tonight. Thanks, mm-hmm. you two. Last month, the B.C. Securities Commission surveyed more than 500 British Columbians to get their reaction to an investment offer that boasted guaranteed returns of 14 to 25 percent and no risk. Well, the results were startling. Although the offer contains several investment fraud red flags, 26 percent of respondents said it was worth looking into. 20 percent of those who would look into it said they were interested because they need the money. Younger British Columbians were most at risk, especially young women. Nearly half of millennial women aged 18 to 34, or 47%, said they would check out the fraudulent offer, compared to 35% of men in the same age group. Older respondents were the least vulnerable. Only 13% of those aged 55 and over were at risk of being taken in. That's down from 26% back in 2012, and the BCSC conducted a similar national online study. This is troubling because the younger British Columbians need to develop some investing habits and included with that is the ability to fraud-proof themselves. So being able to identify some of the signs of investment fraud, which include things like high rates of return, pressure to invest, uh, and no risk or low risk or guaranteed or risk-free. And remember, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Also, always do your homework and research any potential investment opportunity before handing your money over. While seniors appear to be getting smarter, the B.C. Securities Commission is not sure why millennials are such a high risk for investment fraud. And if you have a consumer issue for us, you can reach me. There's my email address at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. A transit bus careens into several parked cars in Ohio, injuring at least one passenger. The video taken from the camera aboard the bus shows the coach as it slams into the back of a parked vehicle, pushing it on top of another car parked in front of it. In total, at least three cars and a light pole were damaged. Witnesses say the driver of the bus was on the phone at the time, but other reports contradict that. A Toronto man is speaking out tonight, haunted by his date with an alleged serial killer. Sean Cribben says Bruce MacArthur, who's now charged with six counts of first-degree murder, had him in a kill position before he managed to escape. Catherine McDonald has a Global News exclusive and a warning. Some of the details are disturbing. I was this close that day. 
Sean Cribben was in disbelief when police announced Bruce MacArthur had been arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder in January. When my partner brought in the picture, and I said, oh my God, I've been with him. Cribben met MacArthur on a gay dating app and agreed to have consensual sex at the 66-year-old landscaper's Thorncliffe Park apartment late last July. He looked like Santa Claus, like... Um, even on his profile, his pic had a picture of him as the mall Santa. MacArthur described himself as someone who likes to give abuse to submissive men of all ages. Push till you can't take any more. Cribben got to the apartment and agreed to take GHB, also known as the date rape drug, but believes MacArthur gave him too much. I don't know how long I was unconscious, so, but there was, at that point, I could hear the roommate was home. The 50-year-old says his memory is patchy, but says detectives have since filled in the gaps. And the police contacted me the day after his arrest. Cribben says he met with a female detective and wondered how she knew about his date. She suggested that they had images of MacArthur and Cribben in the alleged serial killer's bedroom. He told police he didn't remember seeing any cameras. She said to me um, that I was... I was bound, I was in pretty much, for lack of a better term, because I can't disclose everything, um, a, a kill position for him. Cribben says he remembers not being able to breathe, but never realized how lucky he was that MacArthur's roommate came home and interrupted what was going on. The police were trying to allude to me how that I was a victim, because at this point... I just thought I had a bad date. Like, I had not realized what I was involved in the day I left there. Since meeting with police, he's been in trauma counseling and now has a safety plan in place with his partner, fearing it could have ended differently. I have um, a strange, overwhelming urge to speak with um, Andrew's family, and I don't know why. Cribben says he was originally supposed to meet up with MacArthur in early May before Andrew Kinsman disappeared. He wonders if that date had happened, if Kinsman, one of MacArthur's alleged victims, would have been spared. There's a little bit of survivor skill on my part. He calls himself the lucky one. It hadn't dawned on me till we got further along in the conversation how much danger I was in that day and how close... I was to not coming back. Catherine McDonald, Global News. A slight improvement in this province when it comes to unintentional illicit drug overdose deaths. There were 125 suspected drug overdose deaths in January 2018. That's a 12% decrease over January 2017. However, that number still equates to about four deaths per day for the first month of the year. And men account for about 82% of those who lost their lives. Now, fueled by fentanyl, the opioid crisis continues to be one of the province's most pressing health issues. Now, experts who lived and learned during the HIV-AIDS epidemic are using their knowledge to help stem the tide of opioid deaths. Here's Erin MacArthur. She'll be helping our team specifically uh, do our quality improvement work. It's a team dedicated to getting a better handle on the opioid crisis in Vancouver. At Boost, Dr. Cole Stanley is working with partners across the healthcare spectrum to measurably improve the lives of people living with addiction. A daunting task, 
and one that is more than just about fentanyl. We have the, the medicine that can replace the actual heroin or fentanyl, um, but it's often not enough. Some of the strategies in fighting fentanyl stretch back decades. In the early 1990s, AIDS had become the single biggest killer in North America. In Vancouver, the death toll was staggering. We every day met every, early in the morning to just review who, who from our clients have died. The tide turned against HIV-AIDS when the social stigma began to melt away. When it was diagnosed as a virus, proper treatments like effective drugs and social supports became normal. While doctors say opioids are a completely different, more complex problem, getting out from the stigma is still key. Oral opioid replacements work well, but only if the healthcare workers can find the patients who need them. You know, if you do miss a dose, how can we contact you? Often they don't have a phone, they may have an email or a friend with a phone or uh, the outreach team can find them in their apartment or, you know, there's all sorts of creative solutions to, to following up with people. Retention rates in opioid uh, therapy, uh, agonist therapy, are as low as 30% in Vancouver. So no wonder why people are still using and people are still dying from, from overdose. Drug poisoning? is killing four people every day in British Columbia. That's twice as many as at the height of the AIDS epidemic. The solutions are long-term. It's time many people living with addiction don't have. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Caught on video, a ski instructor holds on to a five-year-old girl's jacket as she dangles from a chairlift. The dramatic rescue right after Christie's forecast. My worst nightmare. Right? Let's check in with her yeah. right now. I know you spent a lot of time on the slopes with the boys. Yeah, holding them back up on the chairlift. Right. Yeah. Uh, beautiful day today. Incredible. Check out this sunset. We warmed up to 11 degrees in some parts of the lower mainland today, and sunset is now after 6 o'clock. And don't forget, we changed our clocks forward this weekend, so the sunset will be after 7 o'clock, making the days feel nice and long. We change it over on Sunday morning early at around 2 uh, uh, AM. Now, keep in mind, there are parts of the province that are still digging out. Record snowfall on the ground on this day in many parts of the province. Here are just four. Breaking records from 1997, which is interesting. That was also a weak La Nina year. But hope, close to a meter of snowfall in these other areas, a half a meter. Uh, just incredible snow on the ground. And we are headed into spring. And the concern is, of course, the warm-up. Last spring, remember through June, we had significant flooding. So we'll be tracking that in the coming months. Here's some of your photos, though. This is a doghouse up in Fort Fraser. Thanks to Joe for that one. And the um, snowbanks on the sides of the road so high up to the roofs of a lot of houses. These guys having some fun with that, as you can see here. But um, the stats really are showing that above normal precipitation this winter. And if we continue on that trend, we certainly could be... Uh, in the risk range for flooding as we head into the spring. Now, in the short term, we could see some localized flooding this weekend. This is an example of the change we'll see in temperature in Prince George, but we'll see this warm-up right across the province this weekend, a massive warm-up and into early parts of next week. So because we have so much snowfall on the ground, watch for some localized flooding. Tonight uh, and tomorrow will be mostly dry, but tomorrow night a system will move on to the south coast, and then Thursday morning that will spread snowfall into the uh, interior 
interior regions. So tomorrow night and Thursday, another system on the way, but we dry out after that. Backing up and looking at your Wednesday, beautiful sunshine. So one more dry day before that next system pushes on shore. Sunshine and mild conditions, south coast regions. Again, we will see a warm up as well. So that one system moving in Wednesday night through our Thursday, but we're back to dry weather and check out our temperatures that we should see this weekend. Two birthdays for you tonight. June Law celebrating 103 years and Lena Johnston, an incredible 109. And don't forget on March 19th, we'll be changing the uh, birthdays to the noon show. Mark is so excited and we're excited to be uh, giving you that change. And here's our weather window from Langley today. Thanks to Holly for that. It was a beautiful day today. Oh, great. Puffy clouds. Mm-hmm. Looks really nice. Thanks, Christy. Now back to those tense moments at a California ski resort. This young girl has slipped off an icy chairlift before the safety bar came down. The five-year-old was with a ski instructor who managed to grab her by her hoodie before she fell. Staff stopped the lift, grabbed a tarp and set up right below the girl who had lost consciousness by this point. They caught her. And in moments, she came to with only minor bruising on her neck. Officials at the ski hill are now investigating exactly what happened. And Gordo, it's going to be okay. <laughs> she, her, her helmet okay. had gotten caught probably and She's... choked her. Oh well, my gosh. it was the it was the ski instructor. <laughs> I don't don't mean to laugh. The ski instructor had grabbed her by the jacket, and so she oh, was. I you see. know, that's why she was. That's a good grab. It was yeah. a good grab. Good it was hands. a close call. Sadness in Canucks Nation. <laughs> Listen. Doom. Canuck fans know this feeling, mm-hmm. and they've known it yeah. for a long time. Throughout the years, they have seen more than their share of bad luck. Look at every draft lottery. This team has never picked first overall in the draft. Two game sevens in the Stanley Cup final. Did we get cups? No, we got riots. Make a great draft pick in Cam Neely. We trade him away before he becomes a Hall of Famer. Pavel Bure becomes a superstar. Then he hates playing here, and we have to trade him to Florida. All bad luck. Last night's back injury to Brock Besser, also bad luck. Canuck Nation's used to it. The only silver lining is it wasn't as bad as it could have been. He's officially out four to six weeks, but it looks scary. It sent a shockwave through the Canucks bench. But like all athletes, you cannot be thinking about the injury too long. It is just part of their world. Oh, Besser's hurt here. You could hear the collision, and then you could hear the whistle, and you're just kind of laying there. So, you know, you panic, obviously, for him. And, uh, that was scary. Hockey players getting hurt is part of the game. From shift to shift, season to season, it's a harsh reality that players live with. Brock Besser's fractured back, the latest on a wallpaper long list of injuries suffered by Canucks players this season. You know, when you see him lying there and, you know, not moving much and basically being carried off the ice, you know something's wrong. And, um, you know, whenever you see any of your teammates go down like that, it's definitely, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy to see. Going to get deflected, and look, it hits right up and into his face. So and that's the thing. Very, Every very time quickly. someone goes down to injury, their teammates have a front row seat and the trauma attached to it. It's like you and I seeing a serious traffic incident, except we forget about it after we drive past the accident scene, not giving it a second thought. Not only are these guys witnesses to the on-ice carnage, a few minutes later, they're right back at it. It's tough when you see it doesn't matter what kind of injury it is or, or uh, 
who it happens to. I think uh, it's always tough to see because you never know. You know your, your friend, your teammate, your you know the guy you spend every day with is hurt on the ice, and and he's basically carried off. You don't know how he is until after the game, so you kind of have to put that on the back burner and, and go and play and try to win a hockey game. Uh, but at the same time, it's always in the back of your mind. Here's Bo Horvat going into the boards. The pressure to win, coupled with the risk of this happening to you, is the human side to all of this. Except the injury portion of this equation is sports math no player wants to compute. It's Stetcher in the face. He's down and hurt. Unless you're in the battle and you understand it, it's really hard to explain it. You know, injuries are part of the game, and you know that ever since you started playing the game. And... Uh, you know, that's why it is hard to play in the league and play for a while because you do get hurt. And uh, the guys understand that. But uh, it is never easy when you see a teammate down and hurting. Okay, getting back to the bad luck aspect of this injury. Besser was only hurt last night because the Canucks' door was open at the bench. It wasn't anyone's fault. It was just bad timing. But Daniel Sedin, for one, thinks the door on the bench is not really that necessary. I don't think we need doors, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's, uh, I don't know why they're there. I mean, most guys jump over the boards anyways. But there, there are, I mean, throughout the year, there is close calls uh, on, a, on a lot of occasions. And uh, unfortunately, it happened to, to Brock last night. But you see it uh, a lot of times throughout the years where it, it, something bad could, could happen. Okay, lost in all the concern for Brock Besser was a great game from Brendan Leipzig, minus some bad penalties, but so far he's making that trade look pretty good. And last night may have been one of Jake Furtanen's best games as a Vancouver Canuck. Uh, Now, we have seen him have good games and then disappear for long stretches before. He cannot be seen with the frequency of a comet. He's got to put good games together. But I want to show you not a goal from last night by Jake Furtanen, but a play he made in overtime that was very impressive. Watch. Watch him chase down and back check. Not take a penalty. Lift stick, take puck. Brilliant play. And then the winning goal by Leipzig, who had a great game offensively. Took some bad penalties, as we said, but nice patience right here. Waits out the goalie. In. Ball game. He was a great scorer in junior. Hasn't put it together really in the NHL, but who knows? Maybe he will thrive under his old junior coach, Travis Green. Uh, tonight in the NHL, Steve Mason back in the Jets net. He was down by a concussion on January 12th. This is his first game since then. Patrick Line, the great shot and a goal. That's one. And then Patrick Line again for the 37th time this year. The great shot and a goal. He'd get one more. Jets win it 3 nothing over the Rangers. Cristiano Ronaldo, Real Madrid, Paris Saint-Germain. Apparently this section is having a 420 gathering. (laughs) Ronaldo scores. And then shortly after running through that smoke, went and got some Doritos on the bench. A couple of more looks at this one. He has 12 goals and eight games in Champions League. They win it on aggregate 5-2, so Real Madrid moves on. Paris Saint-Germain is out. Liverpool also moved on. Canada, the uh, Langley rink for the World Junior Championships of curling, 4-2. Uh, BC is one and four at Lebrier. There you go. Was that smoke or was it fog? I think it was smoke. Okay. Yeah. Weird. It was, it was a smoking section of that <laughs> part of the stadium. Yeah. Fireworks going off. 
Here's today's snow report. Lots of snow on those mountains. Whistler Blackcomb, a base of 308 centimeters. Grouse 445, Cypress 425, and Sasquatch 410 with 10 new. Revelstoke base of 268, 224 Manning Park. Powder King 284 and Mount Washington 241. Southern BC Interior, Big White, a base of 323, 272 at Silver Star, 232 Sun Peaks, and 295 centimeter base at Apex. Coming up on ET Canada, we break down that humiliating bachelor breakup, plus Alicia Vikander on getting fit and being a role model in Tomb Raider. That's coming up at 7, right after the news hour. Back to you, Chris and Sophie. Thanks, Carlos. Shocking underwater video captured by a diver that shows him swimming in the waters of a well-known island paradise. But it's not tropical fish or spectacular coral reefs that are causing the video to go viral. Instead, it is a sea of garbage. In an underwater paradise, a plastic nightmare. Diver Rich Horner just days ago filming stunning images, searching for fish, but finding an ocean of plastic trash. Bags, bottles, buckets too, he said. Off the tourist island of Bali, it's meant to be home to hundreds of manta rays. He saw just one, and it's hard to pick out any fish amid the garbage. On the surface too, it's not natural, it's plastic. He says this is the worst it's ever been. Experts call it a global threat. We've got an ugly, dangerous problem, and we're not fearing it sufficiently. The UN estimates by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish. Already it holds five trillion plastic particles dumped across the world. Americans, for instance, throwing out on average 10 plastic bags a week each millions ending up here. Animals big and small are ingesting those and how that eventually ends up inside our own bodies. It ultimately is poisoning all of us, the humans, fish. Almost all of the plastic ever produced is still on Earth and in the oceans, huge islands of it now threatening to smother turquoise seas. Bill Neely, NBC News.